the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the voice of wreckage and ruin and a tired sun on the set, asteroids of the heart and planetary palpitations and perambulations. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Along with... Bain Editorial Assistant, Christopher Rocchio. And intern, Rachel Mintel. What do we have this week, Christopher? Well, this time on the podcast, we have an interview with David B. Coe, who discusses Shadow's Blade, a new entry in his Case Files of Justice Fearson Contemporary Fantasy Series. David talks about his influences, the book's genesis, and many of the wonderfully created characters in this noir detective fantasy. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now here's the news. May is breathing her hot, tickly breath, reeking of floral perfume and promise down our necks, which means new Bane May hardcovers are at booksellers everywhere. Out now is Ring of Fire 4, a collection of stories set in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire alternate history milieu, wherein a small West Virginia town finds itself thrown back in time and place to continental Europe in the 1630s. This one's got some great authors, including a Ring of Fire story by none other than SF author David Brin. There are also tales from David Carrico, Charles E. Gannon, Walter Hunt, and many others. Good stuff, and we have a roundtable with the Ring of Fire 4 authors coming up in a future podcast. Also out is Shadows Blade by David B. Coe. We'll be talking to David shortly about that. It's book three in the case files of Justice Fearson in which a hard-broiled magic... Hard-broiled? Wild-broiled... <laughs> Sorry. I'm hungry, obviously. It's book three in the case files of Justice Fearson in which a hard-boiled, magic-using private detective fights dark sorcerers in Phoenix, Arizona. Ring of Fire 4, edited by Eric Flint, with a host of great authors included, and Shadows Blade by David B. Coe, are now out at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome David B. Coe to the podcast. Hi, David. Hi there, Tony. It's good to see you. As it were. <laughs> David B. Coe is the author of many fantasy and contemporary fantasy novels and stories. He was winner of the William L. Crawford Award for Best First Fantasy Series, awarded at the International Conference on the Fantastic. That's a really well-respected conference for children of Amarid, uh, the novel, and The Outlanders, the first two novels of the Lontoban Chronicles. He is also the creator of the best-selling Winds of the Foreland series, and writing is D.B. Jackson is the author of the Thief Taker Chronicles, which is an ongoing project right now, correct, David? which include Thief Taker, Thieves Quarry, A Plunder of Souls, and Dead Man's Reach. David is a founding member of the well-regarded writing blog MagicalWords.net, and that's probably where you can find it. And David is the author of contemporary fantasy series The Case Files of Justice Fearson, which contains entries Spellblind, His Father's Eyes, and now Shadow's Blade, which is out at booksellers everywhere. David lives with his wife and two daughters, except his daughter is going to school somewhere now, uh, in <laughs> Sewanee, Tennessee, up on the mountaintop where the university is. That's right. Is um, Your wife is uh, is the provost there or something along those lines, is she not? The vice provost and a, and a biology professor. She she basically runs the school. When she's not running the household, she runs the school. Cool. That's the – what's the official name, the University of the South or – it's, right, it's the University of the South, but people know it as Suwannee. Uh, it's, it's a very nice, small liberal arts college uh, on the Cumberland Plateau. It's, it's quite beautiful, actually. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful there. So, uh, David, what's a wear mist? <laughs> a wear mist. A wear mist is uh, essentially a, a sorcerer, a, a wizard who, like a weird creature, like a werewolf or somebody else, on the full moon goes through some changes. And, and in the case of a were the changes include 
uh, his magic getting far more powerful, but his mind weakening to the point of, of temporary insanity. Uh, and so when he most needs to control his power, he is least able to do so. Uh, and eventually, along, over time, these, uh, these moon phasings, as they're called, will, will drive him insane. So it's, it's someone who can use magic that has a, a wearer-like experience. Exactly, exactly. He has access to magic all the time, uh, but every the, the cost of the magic essentially is that every month on, on the full moon, he goes temporarily insane. There are drugs he could take and that some wearmists take to block the effects of the moon, but they also lose their magical abilities, and that's not a trade that he, at this point in the storyline or at this point in his career, is willing to make. Yeah. So he is Justice Fearson, who uh, is called Jay, and he's come a long way since Spellblind, the first novel in the series. He's a pretty powerful wearmist now, um, but his abilities come with a price, as you note. Um, why? It was why he gave up his job as a police detective, right? What was the problem? Well, the problem was that that he was every, every for three months out of the, or three nights out of every month he was going crazy and his partner couldn't cover for him anymore his father was also a wearmist uh and also faced these problems but compounded them with alcoholism and so everybody jay's higher ups are convinced that he's you know his father's son and that he's um getting himself drunk constantly and they accuse him of basically being you know being a negligent cop who who can't meet his can't fulfill his responsibilities uh, and so they demand that he resign or face disciplinary hearings that will result in him being fired. And so he quit his job, and he became a private investigator. Uh, and the thing is, the police, they didn't want him on the force, but every now and then they come across these magical crimes that nobody else on the force can solve. And so, uh, like, like Al Pacino in Godfather 3, every time he thinks he's out, they pull him back in. He has to, uh, to solve a solve a murder or something connected to magic that the police can't handle. Yeah. Well, all right. So he's a private eye in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, in this modern day, in the books, Phoenix, um, how aware is the general population of the magic users and, and wearmists and other magical beings in their midst? That's a really good question, and it's something, frankly, that, that, that was a bit of a struggle as I was first working on Spellblind um, and something you and I, when we were working on the book together, talked about a bit. On the one hand, people know that magic exists, uh, but it, it kind of, it, it's kind of this, this subculture that folks don't talk about. And frankly, the idea of it, from my perspective, writing the stories, is that it has, it has the same feeling that mental illness, and, and that's, that's why the, the tie to mental illness in, in the magic system, it has the same feel that mental illness has in our society. We know it's there, but so often we ignore it, and we kind of allow it to become this, this invisible subculture that we don't want to acknowledge. And so there's magic, there's uh, something uh, that, that folks will encounter in each one of the books called the moon market every month as the phasing is approaching and all the moon, all the, uh, the wearmists are kind of starting to fear the next phasing because they're all going through this. Uh, they attend this moon market where they can buy herbs or crystals or stuff like that that's supposed to lessen the effect of the moon, although, of course, those things are, are of limited use. Um, but there's this sense that, that there really is a culture there. Uh, there are, there are bars where people can go who are wearmists and they, they can hang out with each other without having to expose themselves to the general public. Um, but I wanted that sense of there being a stigma attached to this that goes beyond magic. It really has to do with the loss of sanity and the, the gradual erosion of, uh, of my wearmist mental capacities. Yeah. So um, tell us about the plot so far. Um, where, where are we in the series? Um, Jay has tangled with some pretty nasty characters in his sort of semi-behind-the-scenes magical capacity. Yeah. Um, well, so in the first book, Jay takes on a serial killer who he actually uh, had encountered while he was still on the job, while he was still a cop uh, with the Phoenix uh, Police Department. 
and they never caught him. Uh, they never caught this guy, and he was killing young, uh, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds month in, month out, and they couldn't figure out who it was. And as Jay's magical abilities grow in the wake of his leaving the police force and striking out on his own, he's more and more equipped to deal with the crime. And so the first, the first book is all about his efforts to catch this serial killer. It was a serial killer that he had tangled, that he had not been able to solve before, right? It's something that he's... Exactly, yes. So he hadn't been able to solve the crime before. Uh, he and his partner had worked on it, but, but hadn't... You know, it, was, it, was the, it was the one real huge piece of unfinished business he had when he left the force. And so the first book is about him kind of trying to tie up that last loose end from his former life. But in doing that he begins to encounter kind of other hints at the presence of, of dark magic that goes beyond just this one serial killer who he can't track down. And so I'm not, I'm not going to give too much away as, as the ending of the, of the first book, although, you know, readers aren't going to have that much of a problem figuring out what happens. But um, in the second book, Jay is forced to confront a much larger group of dark wizards than he had thought there were in the Phoenix area. Um, and the key to what they're trying to do is they're, they're, they're trying to undermine kind of the, the, the magical infrastructure on which Jay relies for his training, for the support he gets as he's trying to solve mag magical crimes. Uh, and he faces these very, very powerful dark mages who are using... Um, who are using blood magic and other things to to kind of wage a war against those who would who would try to protect the general public from magic users of this sort. And so that's where we are in in kind of the story arc as we begin the third book, uh Shadow's Blade. And Shadow's Blade is about an escalation of this magical war to the point where where we're really on the verge of, of all hell breaking loose uh, in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Mm. So, well, let's talk about. I want to talk about the uh, the magical infrastructure and and the characters involved there. But um, Phoenix, um, one of the huge strengths of this book for me is that you just are great at evoking Phoenix, uh, its urban areas and the desert that surround it, and. Uh, so you live, as we said, at the moment and for many years in uh, in Tennessee. What did you as a writer do to bring such a feeling of realism to the setting of Shadow's Blade? Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. I, I take a lot of pride in the work I did in trying to make Phoenix and the, and the desert wilderness around it come to life. And what I did was I traveled extensively in the Southwest uh, and, and have traveled extensively in the Southwest kind of throughout my life. It's my favorite part of the country. I've been there again and again and again. And so much of what I draw upon in writing those scenes are notes that I took in a journal that I kept during my early visits there when I was younger. Um, I didn't know then that I would be a professional writer. I was writing because I loved to write and I wanted to keep a journal and kind of force myself to to think the way a writer thinks as I describe things. Um, and so I've gone back in writing these books to those early journals. And of course, I've, I've cleaned up the, the language a bit because I wasn't as, I wasn't as good a writer then. Um, but I've found those observations and the, the descriptions of the wilderness, the descriptions of what it's like to be on the road in the desert late at night, uh, which is something that I draw upon in Shadow's Blade. Um, and I, I wrote about this stuff at length when I was in my 20s, and I'm finding myself going back to that that earlier me and kind of gleaning what I can from from that person's observations. It's been a terrific exercise, and it's one of those things I look back on now, and if I could tell every aspiring writer I know to to keep a journal, I would, just because you never know when you're going to be able to draw upon those written experiences uh, in in your career. I really like your um, your uh, description and, and evocation of Organ Pipe uh, Cactus National Monument, which is one of my favorite places around out there. Yeah, and, and and that was a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. I spent several days camping there with a friend back uh, when I was 
actually when I was driving out to go to graduate school in California, we stopped there and we camped for several days and uh, did a lot of bird watching there and hiked in the desert a lot, saw some incredible sunsets. And some of the passages in Shadow's Blade that take place in Organ Pipe really are lifted almost verbatim from my journals from back then. That's cool. Um, I'm, I hesitate. I, I uh, probably will cut this out, but, um, you know, I uh, camped there for a while, too. The, the only time that I've ever fasted in my life, um, for four days, I didn't eat anything. And it, and I was pretty much hallucinating up on those mesas. <laughs> and the, the uh, bighorn sheep started talking to me and telling me to eat something. So, uh, That's I, so cool. I came down. Um, I came down from to go out, and um, I saw a prickly pear cactus, and I knew you could eat the the buds on it. So I picked one off and put it right in my mouth, <laughs> and that was a really bad decision. <laughs> it was like weeks uh, picking those uh, these those things out. I went to a Denny's after that, by the way. So <laughs> onward. Some kind of like a vision quest or something. It or was, you... yeah, yeah. I uh, I've never tried it before, and I was trying to do that, and. Uh, you know, I, I probably had to do with a woman and figuring out what to do with my life and that sort of thing. It was a long time ago. So, all right, onward. Um, in the previous books in the series, we've met some important people um, in Jay's life, but you were talking about his training. Um, and there's really a, a very important uh, mentor that he's got named Nami. Can you tell us about him? Now, Nami is probably my favorite character in the, in the um, series. He is, um, essentially, he, he was a wehrmist a thousand years ago. Um, and he, along with several others of, you know, of his kind, um, meaning other wehrmists at the time, basically sacrificed themselves so that they could become eternal spirits. And they're, they're, they're known as rune mists. And they become guardians of magic in our world. Um, and so Namid is, he was Native American. He was part of the Kanayakwe clan in the Zuni nation. And the Kanayakwe were the, were the water people. And that line of, of ancestry is extinct now. Um, and so Namid is the only one there. And he's, he's, a, he's kind of a ghost, although as, as we learn very quickly, he really hates being called a ghost. Mm -hmm. um, but that's essentially what he is. And he manifests, because he's one of the water people, I have him manifest as this human-like figure, but he's made entirely of, of waters. And so he, uh, you know, when, when he's calm, he's clear like a lake. When, when he gets emotionally roiled, his, his waters cloud and become kind of, uh, um, uh, muddied and rough like a, like a sea in a storm. He's a really fun character to write and, and describe. And because, again, this is one of those things that we authors do, and I'm not sure if readers pick up on it or not, but it's fun for us. A lot of the evil in these books manifests as aridity and heat and fire and a lot of the good manifests as water and kind of cooling, soothing things that, that ease the burden of living in the desert. And so Namit is, is really the closest embodiment of that. And he and Jay have this very prickly relationship. They get along sometimes. At root, they're, they, they care about each other a lot, but there's a lot of tension and a lot of um, banter back and forth. It's really fun to write as well. Um, but he's, he's a, a really fun character. And one of the things that I did in the second and third books is he starts out as seeming to be this, this, this character who's unassailable. Nobody can hurt Namit. He's, he's, he's a ghost, right? You can't hurt him. And yet the second and third books, the threat posed by the dark sorcerers is really aimed at Namit and his kind, the other rune mist, because if those spirits can be eliminated, then the path of the dark sorcerers to controlling magic in our world becomes clear. And so Namit is both really powerful and incredibly vulnerable throughout the, the second and third books. And again, that was, that was a lot of fun to work with, and it was a turning point in his relationship with Jay, um, and I think deepened their, their interactions a lot. Yeah, it's really, the, the scenes between them are, are great. And it's, it's kind of like a, a prickly uh, piano teacher and her prize student, or his prize student. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It is. It's like that a lot, and and uh, it's actually. Uh, I, I draw upon the relationships I've had with various editors sometimes. When uh-huh. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. So the the <laughs> the magic um, that you've come up with is just it's really logical. It's very cool the way you um, have, have conceived it. Um, can you sort of explain how the mental imagery works and the willpower and uh, how spells are created in this world? Or one of the one of the things I tried to do with this magic, because I've written a lot of series at this point. I've had five, I think, different different book series, and I'm working on another one. And and the magic in so many of them is kind of it, it's it's set. There's a certain way to do magic, and this is how it works. And and there you are. That's how you have to do it. And one of the things I wanted to do with the magic in Jay's world is make it individual. The, the magic follows rules. There, there's, and, and those rules are ironclad. I don't allow people to bend those rules because as soon as you do that, your magic system starts to fall apart. But the manifestation of spellcasting is different for every conjurer in this world. And so for Jay, he, he kind of, he, it becomes almost a mnemonic device for him. He finds a way to think of elements in his magical spells. Usually they come in groups of three or groups of seven. There's power in numbers in this system. And so if uh, if I want to shatter a window from a distance, I might think of the glass and my fist and my fist going through the window. And those are the three elements that he holds in his mind. And thinking about those things and exerting his willpower on them, he can make that magic happen. Now, the imagery doesn't, in the, in the larger scheme of things, the imagery doesn't matter. Um, he, a different sorcerer might use a different set of images to accomplish the same magic. But Jay has his imagery that he uses, and it's what he holds on to. And what I'm trying to get him to do, and what he's trying to get to do, and what Namit is trying to teach him to do, is be less deliberate about the magic and more uh, more immediate in his manifestation of the power that he has so that instead of having to repeat those three elements to himself three times and then release the power, it becomes as immediate as thought. And so in a way, as I move further and further through the series, the the use of those images is going to become less and less of a factor in the magic because, because Jay's trying to move beyond that. Um, but for now, we're kind of getting a glimpse at how a uh, an advanced beginner, which really is where Jay is in the first and second book, um, how an advanced beginner would handle taking that imagery and turning it into power. And in the third novel, as things heat up, he finally starts to understand what it is Namit is trying to get him to do, and he does that with the help of of one of the other characters, uh, a woman who he's trying to help throughout the throughout the book, um, and he kind of finds the secret to what Namit has been telling him all along, which is magic has to be immediate. It can't just be this, this long process, because in, in the time it takes you to cast the spell, you're going to get yourself killed. Yeah. The, um, well, since we mentioned Gracie, why don't we talk about her? Um, the, the book begins with this very gripping scene with, with a mother trying to protect her young children, um, especially for those of us with kids. It really hits home. Um, and we see that Gracie is is a wearmist of great power, but she's not the same as um, as Jay at all. She has it sort of comes from a different place. What are Gracie's ability, and what does that say about her? Well, I think what what Gracie has is she has a better understanding than Jay at this stage in his at, at the stage he's at as the book begins. Um, she has a better understanding of of the lessons that Namit is trying to impart to Jay. She understands that magic isn't necessarily a process of reciting things. It's it's more a matter of immediate thought and the exertion of power. And one of the things that she is able to do is draw on energies other than her own. Jay starts out very much of the mind that any power that there is resides within me, and I have to draw upon that power or else I'm helpless. And what Gracie has already realized and what she helps Jay to realize over the course of the book is it's almost, it's almost Yoda-like. There's power everywhere. And so in that opening scene, which was really fun to write, as you say, for those of us with kids, kind of 
blending the thread of, of existential magic with the very mundane things like getting your kids a meal and having them use the bathroom before you get out, out on the road again. Um, those two tensions are, are in that scene all the way through. It was, it was a, a great scene to write from that perspective. Um, but one of the things she can do is she draw, draws upon the electricity humming through the walls of the restaurant she's in. Uh, the restaurant is essentially a McDonald's, and she basically she destroys the restaurant by pulling the power from the the electrical wires and using it as a weapon against these people who are trying to hurt her and take her children from her. Um, and so she kind of represents this this higher level of magical attainment that Jay is trying to get to, um, and she's also. Uh, she's fiercely protective of her children to the point that she and Jay at first don't get along at all. Um, she isn't interested in his help. She isn't interested in him being involved in their lives. She just, she's going to take care of her kids and she's going to get away as she knows how and screw him. Um, but she's also harboring a secret and she's being pursued by powers who are beyond even her abilities to combat. So in the end, she has to trust him and, and their relationship is, uh, is rather fraught at first. And then there's a little bit of sexual tension, which is weird because Jay already has a girlfriend and she has a husband who she's kind of trying to figure things out with. So it all gets very complicated, but you know, life's messy. And I was trying to, to, to convey that messiness in their relationship. Yeah. Well, um, We'll talk about the bad guys, but uh, one thing I did, one of the uh, the wonderful moments is when uh, the, when they're running from these horrible, like incredibly powerful bad guys, and she's like, "We have to get the booster seats." Out of the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and again, That's it's right. that thing. I mean, it, when you're when you're a parent, you just you find yourself thinking in ways and doing things that you never thought you would do or think about or my wife was talking about this the other day you know there comes a time when your kids a certain age and you find yourself stringing together words in a perfectly logical sentence that you never thought you'd have to string together like no don't put that thumbtack in your mouth Mm. things like that you never think you have to say that to someone and yet at some point in the life of your child you're going to have to say some really weird stuff to them (laughs) you know and one of the things she does is she tries to balance being a mom with being this kind of kick-ass sorcerer and sometimes she pulls it off and sometimes she just she's just mom again and she was you know i I keep on coming back to it was a really fun thing to write and and the fact of the matter is i love writing these books and i think part of it is the the fact that it's contemporary and part of it is that jay has on the one hand extraordinary abilities and on the other hand a very ordinary and and relatable life and combining those things has been has been challenging but also really rewarding this is um, another digression. This is the first series you've written that's set in modern day times, isn't it? Yes, it is. I've enjoyed that immensely. One of the things I enjoy when I'm writing my medieval fantasy or when I'm writing the Thief Taker books is D.B. Jackson and going back in history. You have to be so careful about the language you use and not start using anachronistic terms that are going to pull the reader out of the time element that they're in. Um, and you don't have to worry about that when you're writing the contemporary stuff. This is also the first series I've written in first person, um, which has been great. I feel closer emotionally to Jay than I have to any other character I've ever written, because when I'm writing him, I really am immersing myself in his experiences in a way that I don't think you do as much in a third-person character. Uh, and so this is this series has been a stretch for me and and a new experience for me in a couple of different ways and it's one of the reasons why I enjoy the book so much and I'm so eager to 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 continue the series. Yeah. So the uh, back to the bad guys. Um, the the yeah. <laughs> the the necromancers not so good um, and they are they're on a power level sort of with with Nabend. Um Tell us about Seorla. Uh, yeah, Seorla is. Uh... She's essentially the, the, the power equivalent of the Rune Mist. And the difference between her and her kind and Namid and his kind is that Namid and, and the Rune Mist kind of, they made a sacrifice. They sacrificed their lives and they did it with the blessing of the other um, mists around them. And so there was kind of a, a magical sacrifice happening. Serla and her kind took the power they have 
with with nobody else's sanction, with nobody else's permission, uh, and tried to circumvent the the sacrificial element of what they were doing. And so there's a there's an element of corruption in them. And in fact, Serla is this uh, this ancient spirit. She's a she's a Celtic woman, um, quite beautiful, but but capable of changing her her appearance at will. And actually, in her true appearance, she she looks like a, a rotting cadaver. And this this smell, this faint smell of decay clings to her, even when she looks beautiful and she's hiding her true essence. You can always, if you're downwind of her, you just get this sense that, oh, there's there's something truly corrupt in this woman. Um, but she is, um, you know, she has her motivations. She is, like any good villain, the hero of her own story. And so she's not evil to the extent that she you know, has no redeeming qualities at all, but she wants different things and she is aiming for a different kind of world than the one that Namid wants to protect. And she has fixed on Jay because Hira has a relationship with Namid and she thinks she can use Jay to to get at Namid and kill him or destroy him, since he's already technically dead, uh, but destroy him. And so Jay finds himself kind of the the, the, the cue ball between between these two and he's constantly being hit in different directions by the two of them and having to figure out life for himself and and how he's going to balance his relationship with Namid with his fear of and desire to destroy uh Sarah. Uh and so she's she's been an interesting character as well and she uh she threatens Jay's father, she threatens Jay's girlfriend, she uh she goes after pretty much uh, everyone who who Jay cares about. And at the beginning of Shadow's Blade, he, he owes her a favor. Yes, he does. He 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 has bartered with her to save his girlfriend's life in the second book, and so he owes her a boon, as she puts it. Uh, and that indebtedness um, haunts him throughout the book, and he has to find a way to overcome it. Uh, and you know, that's that, that's all I'm going to say on that score. Yeah, but yeah. That, that favor that she wants from him looms over everything that happens in book three. Another bad guy is uh, nasty, elegant Fitzwater, um, who uses blood magic is not good in this world, right? Right, not at all. Tell us a little bit about Fitzwater. He was a fun character, fun evil. He is a fun character. One of the things that I wanted to do, so there are, in addition to the were-myths, there are were-creatures in this book. There are werewolves, but they're not like the werewolves who we encounter in you know, thriller movies and, and, you know, creature feature back when we were kids. Um, they're, they, they share their souls with their totem animal and on the full moon they turn, so if somebody's a werewolf, they turn into a wolf for three days, but they live life naturally as a wolf would for those days and then they turn back. Um, and there's no taint, there's no, you know, if you bite, if somebody bites you, you don't become one. That's not how it works. They're just, they, they just change. And so I, I was kind of playing with the werewolf thing there, and I got the idea for Fitzwater because I thought, well, if I have werewolves, I really ought to have vampires. And so Fitzwater uh, is, he's kind of a magical vampire. He doesn't bite anyone, but if he puts his hand on you, he can draw upon the blood in your body to fuel his spell. And his ability to do this is so complete that by the time he's done drawing upon you for that spell, you're dead. And so he's he's a magical vampire who just has to put a hand on you and then he's using your blood for his spells. And he's elegant and and polite. He's he's almost like a James Bond type villain, you know, you know, good evening, Mr. Bond. He's somebody you'd expect to see in a in a tuxedo or something. But he is truly scary. Um and when I thought of him I was really happy because I, I needed to, to up the ante a little bit and he was a really nice villain to draw upon for that. A couple of other the the thing that um, is an, another great thing about the series is that Jay, uh, while this is sort of noir in its way, it's PI. Um, he's not an alienated PI who doesn't have any relationships um, except to uh, to his gun. Um, his father is prominent in the series, and uh, he's sort of a harbinger of what Jay might become. Um, and Jay's girlfriend, Billy, um, could, just can you outline Jay's world a little bit, his his family world, as it were, and Kona? Yeah, you know, to a certain degree, Jay was, Jay begins the series as that 
noir character loner. Um, his father is is has these mental problems that have come from a lifetime's worth of moon facings, where he's been going insane every month for however many years, and his mind is is really fragile. There are times when he's with it and they can have a conversation, and times when he's just gone. And so Jay doesn't have much connection there. His mother is long since dead. And when we meet Jay, he's he's estranged from the police department. He and Kona, his old partner, still have a relationship. They have a friendship. But it's it's a tenuous bond to this community that he used to be part of. And he doesn't yet have a girlfriend. We meet Billy in book one. Um, but I wanted... I kind of see these books, part of, part of the character arc is Jay healing from the trauma of losing his job and, and being forced to strike out on his own. And so his relationship with his father is one that, as you say, he sees in his father the future that magic holds for him. He's going to be insane like his father eventually if he doesn't start taking the drugs that can block the effects of it or doesn't find some way to master the magic to the point that it won't happen. Um, and that relationship, I lost my parents uh, about 15, 20 years ago. And my mom went through a period where she, she, had, been, she had been sick with cancer and the, the treatments had the effect of robbing her of her mental capacity. She kind of went into this Alzheimer-like state um, for the last few months of her life. And my father took care of her, but then right after she died, he got sick, and within a year, he was dead as well. And so, in a way, the relationship that Jay has with his father and, and seeing him wasting away and seeing his mind going is a combination of the experiences I had in losing my parents. And so there's a, there's a degree to which this series, while fun in some ways, is also really cathartic for me. It took me 15, 20 years to be able to write about it, but I'm finally processing those emotions I had in losing my own parents um, and, and delving into those relationships. Uh, and I think it deepens Jay. It makes him a more relatable character, a more believable character, more sympathetic, um, and it explains so much of how he approaches the world. Um, and then, you know, Billy, his his girlfriend, is this person he meets who he doesn't get along with that well at first, but he winds up falling for her and she for him. And their relationship has been fun for me to write because it has elements of the the early days of my relationship with my wife, kind of the teasing and the the things that you have early in a in a romance and uh, and. She is having to come to grips with Jay's mental illness and the fact that he has this magic, and I think that that's an important component in their relationship. And so all these things are intended to humanize him and make him something more than just another noir detective. Not that, you know, I have nothing against noir detectives. I write them a lot, and I enjoy them. My, my lead character in the um, Thief Taker books is a noir detective, but... Jay's different. Jay has so much going on in his life and so many emotional touchstones that he's dealing with um, that I think it makes him relatable for my readers. He, um, I, I don't know if this is a is a parallel, but he he really reminds me of Jim Rockford from the Rockford Files in a in a you know that sort of humanized uh, version of the of the tough PI. Yeah, and, and I, I'm so glad you said that because The Rockford Files was my favorite show growing up. And both with this series and the Thief Taker books, I really drew upon that character and that type of character for that sense of sort of a loner but connected to the world but down on his luck and funny at times but also serious. And that's, that's a great comparison. And I, I, as I say, I'm really grateful to you for bringing it up because, because that was something I was shooting for. Yeah, well, that's, I picture his dad as Rocky. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. We need Angel now. Well, all right, doesn't have to parallel it exactly, I guess. So, <laughs> so um, there is the uh, Shadow's Blade of this title. This is a very nasty thing um, with an evil-sounding Celtic name. What's so dangerous and powerful about this relic? Well, the the blade, the the, the blade that is. The, the title piece, kind of the Maltese Falcon of this <laughs> of this book, yeah. um, is the weapon that was used by Sarah and her cohort to take their own lives and become immortal a thousand years ago. And so it's the one, it's the blade that's imbued with all the magic that 
the necromancers use. And they believe, the necromancers believe that it's the one weapon they can use against the rune myths like Namid that will actually kill them, that will transcend whatever magic it was that created the rune myths in the first place and allow them to prevail in their war. And so this, this is, you know, it's one of those weapons. It's a super weapon. And, and if it falls into the wrong hands, really, really bad stuff happens. Um, and so it's, it's a race to find that, that blade. Uh, and do something with it to keep it from falling into the wrong hands. Um, and uh, it was one of those things, I, when, when the idea came to me and I, I was able to picture the blade, it just, all these ideas I had for what I wanted to do with this third book came together in a way that I hadn't anticipated at all. And um, it's, it's, it became the, corner, you know, the, the cornerstone of the entire story arc for that third book. Uh, and and I think it works. I really I I I enjoyed what, writing that that bit of it into it. A couple of other um, well, I wanted to talk about uh, Jay's employer and and his uh, his buddy Q as well. Um, there's just a lot of great characters. Well, hey, you do have a, a Stuart Margolin character. It's it's Q. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Q is kind of the Stuart Margolin. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, Q is an ex-con. Who Jay arrested when he was uh, when Jay was still on the force, uh, but but Q, his name is Orestes Quinley, and he's this quirky Haitian guy who is a conjurer, a, a weirmist in his own right, um, but he has certain quirks. He always talks about himself in the third person, like a like a, a Rastafarian Bob Dole, and he um, and he talks in verse sometimes, just for for the hell of it. Uh, and, but he's, he's, he's the informant. He's the, I don't know if you remember, uh, Beretta. He's the huggy bear of the, uh, of the show. And, and, uh, and he's, uh, another character who, you know, it, it, it one of the things I love about this series, and one of the reasons I, I fought so hard to get it published, it was, it was a long time for me selling that first book, but I fought and fought and fought for it because I love these characters so much. Um, and, uh, and then Amaya, the Jay's boss for the third book is—he's completely different. He's—he's a—he's a drug kingpin, but also a uh, rune mist, and he has all the resources in the world. But of course, he's—he's he's wanted, and and they just don't know how to get him because he's very good at what he does, um, and he's dangerous. And Jay is. He's declared that Jay's a friend, but he's one of those friends who you don't necessarily want in your life because every time he calls. You, you wonder what you're going to have to give up um, in order to satisfy whatever whatever his need is at the moment. And so he lends another element of, of danger and threat to Jay that has less to do with these magical beings and much more to do with the everyday dangers to an ex-cop of doing business with um, a criminal mastermind, essentially. Uh, so again, you know, just a lot of fun characters, a lot of uh, a lot of different experiences for Jay and a lot of of minefields he has to navigate during the course of these books. And the fate of the world on the line. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> what was the, 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 the Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, tombstone? You know, she saved the world a lot. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, what are you working on at the moment, David? Uh, well, I have a few things going on. Uh, one of them is uh, I'm trying to I'm, I'm coming up with a proposal for more Fearson books because I'd like to uh, I'd like to continue the series past this third book. So I'm hoping to uh, to have something uh, down on paper uh, early this summer that I can that I can present to to Bain and hopefully continue the series. I have um, the rights back to my very first series, Children of Amrit and the Outlanders and Eagle Sage, the, the books of the Lon Tobin Chronicle that you mentioned in the intro, uh, and I've been editing my very first book going through it and kind of updating the the prose so it reflects more my writing ability now and that's been a very interesting process kind of uh experiencing my writing from an editor's perspective as it was you know 20 years ago when i was first starting out and wading through too many adverbs and passive constructions and kind of uh cleaning it up and getting that ready so that's another thing i'm doing because i'll be releasing those books on my own uh later this year um, and then I have I have about 110,000 words written on a new epic fantasy, uh, and I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do with it. 
because it needs a lot of work, but I'm excited about the, the world and the magic system and the character, and so I'm, uh, I'm trying to work on that. So I have, I have a lot of irons in the fire right now. Cool. I, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the getting your, your old series as ebooks up on Bain ebooks, by the way. We, were, we need to do that. Okay. <laughs> so keep us in the. So um, you. It sounds like we're going to see more of Jay Fearson if there's anything that all of us can do about it, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and at the end of the third book, if Jay survives, he's going to be a. Uh, <laughs> he's going to be a more powerful sorcerer than he was uh, at the beginning of the first book by a long shot, as we we already talked about, and so. One of the challenges now is coming up with with new threats to him that are commensurate with his new abilities, so that the danger remains as as imminent and and severe as it is in these earlier books, um, and also ways to to draw upon what's worked in the series, those all those relationships with all the different people, while trying to keep it fresh with new. Um, new villains and new plot lines and stuff like that. So, so I'm, I'm, I haven't rushed coming up with this new proposal. I've been thinking about it for a while and I'm starting to get a sense of exactly where I want to take it. And I'm excited about it because, because these books are very close to my heart and, uh, and, uh, I'd, I'd like to continue the series. Well, the book is Shadow's Blade by David B. Coe. It is book three in the case files of Justice Fearson. And it's now available at booksellers everywhere. David, thanks so much for being with us. Tony, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And if folks are interested in learning more about the books and about me, uh, davidbco.com is the website. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Ready? Steve asked. All four had switched back to shotgun after clearing the lobby and theater. Now it was time to start working up to the passenger cabins. That meant clearing the stairwell to the first three levels of passenger cabins. According to Chris, there were two sets, inboard and outboard. Based upon what they'd seen with the exterior ones, there might be as many as 50 survivors spread over an area the size of a skyscraper. But first, they had to clear the stairwells. Been that way, Faith said. She'd insisted on point. Steve keyed the door, which popped open, dropping a decomposing corpse at her feet. It was wearing Bermuda shorts and a flowered shirt. It was unchewed. There were scratch marks on the inside of the door. Shit, Faith snarled. Shit, shit. She turned around and walked to the far bulkhead and started kicking it. Shit, 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 shit. Then she reached behind her to cover the teddy bear's eyes. Don't look, Trixie. It's not nicey. Fontana looked at Steve, who held up a finger. Hooch had turned away as well. Steve was nodding his head as if counting time. Faith, Steve said as softly as he could through the respirator. There are people who need saving upstairs. Do you need to head back to the boats? Just give Trixie a second, okay, da? Faith said. She kicked the bulkhead a couple more times, then stuffed the bear's head down into her assault pack. I think Trixie needs some sleepy time. She pulled off her outer glove, then reached into a pouch and pulled out an iPod. She put in the headphones, consulted the playlists, then turned it on. Last, she turned around and walked across and into the stairwell. What are you waiting for? An invitation? Robert Rusty Fulmer Bennett III had gotten over regretting his pleasure cruise a long time ago. How long, he wasn't sure. 
His buddy, Ted, had suggested they go halves on a room, cause chicks on cruises are easy. He hadn't managed to score before the news announced a plague on land. Then the word went around, rumor at first, then confirmed by the ship's crew, that the Pacific flu had gotten on board. Things kind of went downhill from there. When they started getting really bad, the crew had passed out cases of bottled water and cans of food to each room. The cans were number 10 cans, and you get whatever we have. There was one case of liter bottles of water per person and three number 10 cans. That made two cases of water and six cans in their room. Rusty was a big boy, over 300 pounds and six foot seven in his stocking feet. He could go through two number 10 cans of food in a sitting. One of the reasons he wanted to do the cruise was the all-you-can-eat buffets. But he also wasn't an idiot, and he watched enough zombie movies that he realized that they might be stuck in that room for a long time. Then there was the fact that they'd been handed six number 10 cans of some weird-ass bland paste. It said hummus on the side and had a smiling picture of some terrorist-looking mother-forker spooning the stuff up and grinning like he just bombed a church. So Rusty put them to the side and hoped they wouldn't have to eat it. And then Ted turned. He hadn't even shown any signs. By the time the overworked security guards got there, Rusty had Ted tied up in some torn sheets, and he'd managed to avoid getting bitten. Barely. He nearly lost it when Ted went. They had been friends since they were in grade school. But face it, the reason they were friends was that Ted was the geek, Rusty was the muscle. If Rusty had turned, Ted wouldn't have stood a chance. Rusty and Ted hadn't been able to afford the expensive cabin with the ocean view, so they'd been watching the occasional zombie go for a couple days. The ship was still serving, some, and Rusty had gone out a couple times, but he sure wasn't cruising for chicks, just storing up fat and hoping like hell he wasn't going to go zombie. The zombie plagues were the worst. 28 days and it was all going to hell. Then the abandoned ship call came. Rusty tried to get to the lifeboats, but there were zombies in the corridor. So he ducked back into his cabin and tried to figure out what to do. Then the doors locked, and that was that. He drunk an entire bottle of water and filled it from the tap. He kept doing that for two days. Drink the water, fill up the bottle. Drink the bottle, fill up the water. While the zombies howled in the mall, he could watch them. That was about the only entertainment. Then the power failed, and while he could still watch the zombies, there wasn't any more water. Along with the water stopping working, so did the shitter. That was okay. He wasn't pooping much. He'd conserved. He'd sipped even when he was desperate with thirst. He'd heard you could drink piss. When he filled a bottle, he drank that instead of water till it got dark and nasty. Then he'd sip water. He could see the days go by, but his iPhone ran out of power pretty quick, and he had no idea what day it was. He had no idea how long he'd lived in that cabin. When he got up, he'd eat a teaspoon of that terrorist stuff, which somebody told him was made from ground-up chickpea, though the guy called it garbanzo beans, drink piss, and then a capful of water to wash it down. Then sit and wait for all the zombies to die, or somebody with, you know, guns to come along. The ones in the hallway stopped making noise after about two weeks. He was surprised it was that long, without any water, but he still couldn't get out, because the door was locked, and it was like steel. He'd pulled off the veneer to check. He was thirsty all the time, and he was down to pure piss in the bottles, and it turned out that piss turned. It was starting to smell like ammonia or something. The zombies had, like, moods. Sometimes they'd be quiet. Sometimes it seemed like for days. Then they'd get active and usually start fighting each other. He started calling them orcs because they reminded him of those movies with the hobbits. Then the day came when he could hear them getting really riled up. He could barely pay attention. He couldn't really remember the last time he'd gotten out of bed. He knew he was getting bed sores, but it was just too much trouble to get up. But he could hear the zombies making noise and some sort of odd thumping. It was different, 
but he really couldn't care less. There'd been thumps before. Then the door opened. He heard it, but he realized he couldn't even move his head. Another terminal, a muffled voice said. It sounded like a chick, but he'd had that dream before. I'll check. A bright light was flashed in his face, and he flinched. That hadn't happened before. You're real, he croaked. I need a stretcher team, Faith said over the radio. Some big guys. Even as a skeleton, this guy's big. She unkeyed the radio. I thought he was a debtor. My bad. Just drink, Hooch said, giving the guy a sip of water. All the survivors looked like they'd been in the death camps, but this guy was particularly bad, if for no other reason than being so big to begin with. His feet were hanging off the end of the bed. A couple of sips. Your body needs to get used to it again. You're really real? The guy croaked again. We're really real, Hooch said. Sorry it took so long, but the world's gone to shit. We're going to get you over to the boats in a bit. Tell them to bring an IV or this guy's going to go into shock. Bring an IV, Faith said. Cabin 3984. Hooch, we need to keep clearing. Can you hold the bottle? Hooch asked, putting it in the guy's hand. We need to keep looking for survivors. Don't die before the medical team gets here, okay? Don't give up. I won't, the guy said. Thank you. Who are you? Wolf Squadron, Hooch said. Long story. They'll explain it later. Just hang in there. We're going to prop the door. We've cleared the zombies. The guy just barely nodded and tried to raise the water bottle. He couldn't even manage that. Straw, Faith said. She'd spotted one in an old Coke bottle. She cleaned it off, put it in the bottle, and propped it where the guy just had to turn his head. Can you do it now? Yes, the guy said. Thanks. Just hang in there, Hooch said. You made it this long. Don't give up. Not gonna, the guy said. I want to kill zombies. Okay, now you're talking my language, Faith said patting him on the shoulder and sticking the straw between his lips. We'll talk in a couple of weeks. Rusty couldn't believe how good water tasted. It was, like, orgasmic. He didn't have to worry about drinking too much. Every time he took a sip, he had to let his body and brain settle down from the intensity of the experience. Sip, fireworks. Sip, twitch. Sip, more fireworks. There were, like, stars in his eyes. Then he realized it was a flashlight. Son of a bitch, a voice said. The guy doesn't have any veins to put a stick in. Let me try, another voice said. Like you know how any better than me. Hey, guy, this is gonna sting a little. Rusty felt the needle go in, but he'd just taken a sip of water and the fireworks sort of made it unnoticeable. Shit. Another probe. I cannot find a vein. Let me. Rusty wasn't sure how many times they tried to put an IV in, but he did notice he was out of water. Water? He asked. Bottle? Yeah, got it, the guy said. Unlike the first two, who had been covered in weapons and what looked like firefighter gear, not to mention gas masks, the guy was wearing a raincoat and a gas mask, but that was about all. He pulled the straw out and got another bottle, then inserted the straw back in Rusty's mouth. Finally, the second guy grunted. The sensation coming up Rusty's arm couldn't be an IV. It felt like somebody had shot him up with freezing cold coke. Then it spread through his whole body. He wasn't sure he was going to survive the rush. He groaned. You okay? One of the guys said. You know, that's like the stupidest thing I've ever said. It's right up there, his partner said. Let's get him on a stretcher. Should we call for help? Seriously? I think this guy might weigh 90 pounds. Rusty was in a haze the whole way out of the cruise ship. He could sort of recall swaying in the air and the feel of wind. It was cold after so long in the stuffy cabin. They'd wrapped a blanket around him, but his feet stuck out. He saw people climbing up ladders on the side of the ship 
and got a vague impression of what looked like charter fishing boats or something. Then he was in a room on a boat that was bobbing up and down. A girl with black hair was holding onto his IV bag. She was a girl, too young, but she was the prettiest girl in the whole wide world. I need another bag, the girl said. This one is nearly out already. Going to have to wait, a male voice said. We don't have any. They've got some on the grace. I don't think this guy can wait, the girl said. What's your name, Angel? Rusty said. Tina, Tina replied. You're on the changing times. We're going to take you over to another ship called the Grace Tan in just a little while. A stretcher was set down next to his, holding a woman who looked like one of those survivors from a death camp. Her skin was pulled back against her cheeks, and she was, really literally, skin and bones. Can you hold two? One of the stretcher bearers asked. I can for a while, but we need some way to hold them up, Tina said. And more, this guy needs another one. We're running out, the stretcher bearer said, shrugging. I'll see if I can find something to rig up. I said we need more IVs. These people are so gone. We'll float everything we've got off. Charlotte is about two hours out with the Campbell. They have plenty. Roger, Dallas. Thanks again for the assist. Dallas, Squadron Ops, tell the Charlotte we're sending an inflatable up to pick some up. We'll handle the boarding. Rusty wanted to hold on. He was afraid if he closed his eyes, he'd die. But finally, they closed. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And 20 caravans laden with aromatic spices and cool temporary tattoos and henna stencils from Tipperary and Timbuktu. Plus, a ghostly round of applause from all our better selves and thanks and praise to David B. Coe, the author of Shadow's Blade. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 